to the Mind Talks podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest is a sports psychologist. His love for sports psychology is evident as he has a podcast entitled Feel for Football that covers a variety of mental topics in football. He has a book entitled The 30-Day Mindset Planner that is the pathway to achieving peak performance. He offers a variety of performance mentality courses that includes the Mastering Your Confidence course. In addition, he has multi- he has made multiple television appearances, most recently discussing mental health. A warm, warm welcome to Sanchez Bailey. How are you? Thank you for having me, gents. I'm well. I'm, I'm good. Um, it's good to be on, on the podcast and, and appreciate you thinking of me. Good, 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 good. Yeah, nice to have you on and thank you for the invitation. Um, so we have a tradition and it's really for all of our guests to go all the way back. So what was your first living memory either playing or watching a sport? Goodness me, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first living memory was watching Leeds United in the Champions League. Wow. So I, I, might, I might be giving away my age a little bit. I'm, I'm 27. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was on Channel 5, maybe. I don't know. Um, I watched Leeds, which then became the first team I supported. Okay, um, interesting. Short-lived, but yeah, that's my <laughs> first living memory of football. They they had a banging team. They had um Ian Hart left back, um Viduka was up top. Yeah, Rio was there. Um, who is their right back? Um, Kiel. They had that Irish right back. He was really really good move going forward. Ian Hart. No, Ian Hart was the left back. Oh, the left back. Oh, yeah, he was the Kelly. left back. Kelly. Yeah, Kelly was all right. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't seem to agree. Anyway, you got an accent on you. Where are you from, my man? No, no, I'm from London. I'm from London. Oh, excuse me, forgive me. A bad start. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Good, good, good. But yeah, so f- football, that was obviously the first sport you watched. Did, did you play football as a youngster growing up? Yeah, like, I think... Growing up in London, I grew up in an area called Waterloo, um, okay, which yeah. is pretty popular now in terms of it, how central it is. But um, when you grew up in South London, which is, is defined as, you it's kind of impossible not to play football. So I did play, yeah. um, had aspirations to make it. You get to a crossroads at a certain age. Um, and I chose probably more the educational route of, of um, professional sport rather than the practical. Um, what position did you play or were you one of those people that whenever someone asked you a qu- um, what question, what position you played, you said, to be fair, I just played everywhere. No, you only say that in fighters, <laughs> so like, that's five aside. Um, yeah. I, I was a striker, um, and still I'm a striker okay. when I tried to play with friends and stuff. Um, I'm 6'4", so I'm like a tall striker that, um, you know, used to, couldn't head up, but I could play my feet amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. What about you guys? You played? Yeah, yeah, I did. So I played locally. I was a left back. Actually, I was left back, but uh, it was a friend of mine. He was yeah, a friend of mine. I went to school with him. Shout out to Michael Staines. So he, what he did, he went to Glenn and said, "Yeah, you should push Nathan forward um, because he 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 will be able to score a lot of goals." So then I moved to a striker, and I was there for a number of years playing striker. Played a couple of, one season, I think, one or two seasons, um, semi-pro, which was the best season of my life because actually I reverted back to left back. I remember my manager 
both actually both managers because they, they were um co-managing and they was and they both said you're not you're not a striker you're not a striker <laughs> and they didn't say it like that they said it in their very strong Jamaican accent oh, right. and I'm not even going to try it because I'm not Jamaican but I remember them saying yeah you're not a left back you're, sorry you're not a striker you're a left back and you're going to play there and yeah it was my best season I was I was solid I was solid as a rock and but like a lot of youngsters, you know, you want all the glory. You want a person to score in a cup final. You want to you want to be that person that's top scorer. And yeah, I reverted back to being a striker and yeah, I wasn't really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, me, I, I played football a little bit, but I I couldn't balance both of them because I played football and I did I did track and field. I did athletics and I had to pick one of the two when I was young. And I went with track and field because I was I was good. So yeah, football. I started playing again more as an adult, as just kick about five aside. But yes, yeah, if I could go, but I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I'll make a different decision. But it is what it is, man. <laughs> we're like ex semi professionals right now in the game, seasoned semi pros that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I guess sport today. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joking, by the way. Like. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> No, usually everyone's like season pros. I was just making the fact that we weren't pros. No. <laughs> yeah, no, straight. Yeah, no. we we definitely were not pros. Um, so you briefly mentioned about there was a crossroads and you decided that education yeah. was the route forward. So psychology, you know, pardon my ignorance, but the first thing that comes to mind in terms of education is science. So what the science is your your favorite subject and can you just talk to us about the early process sure, sure. from you know you understanding education and moving on to becoming a psychologist of course of course so um that crossroad was about being 17 so you know if you're like how i grew up and it's the wrong mentality so if anyone thinks like this i would encourage you to see the bigger picture but if i was not 18 playing at manchester united i didn't make it you know um there wasn't that mindset where there's like four or five to even seven leagues below the Premier League. And also, forget England, there's so many other different countries that you can play at. So my mindset was very limited, where once I realised I wasn't Man United and um, uh, bound, <laughs> playing with Rain Rooney up front, um, I realised that <laughs> um, oh, I thought I wasn't going to make it. Chose to go to university, study sports science. And I said this earlier, where I was... Um, there was a module of sports psychology and there was a new teacher that came in in my second year. I almost fell in love with her because of the stories and the lessons she would kind of like um, display and I just became so obsessed with the mental side. So it wasn't too scientific for me, it was more about it changed the way I even watched sports. So I couldn't even watch sports and, and just watch it from a fan. I had to watch and I could link certain behaviours or things that I would see to the things I was learning. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started the, the obsession with, with the mental side that I guess has lasted best about like maybe eight years now. Wow. With, with a lot of people I know that are either sports psychologists or psychologists, people feel comfortable talking to them and they tend to go down that path. Was it the same for you or was it just completely from just doing that module that made you decide to go down that route? I think, I guess as a psych, psychologist in any capacity, I think clients or who, individuals are also like compelled to who you are as a person. So I do think growing up, I was quite a confident guy. 
which I guess helped me probably to do anything in life. But um, I think there definitely are skills that I had to harness. But I think yeah. largely, I think my personality being quite open and um, kind of being a people's person allowed me to be uh, to complement the role a little bit more. So it's a mixture of both. I had to kind of grow into the role and learn some fundamentals that allow me to be um, allow someone to feel open to speak to me and for me to be able to gauge things. But I think a large part is the personality and the individual that I was thankfully um, growing up. Does that okay. make sense? Is there anything in particular? It does. Is there anything in particular at university that stands out in terms of a piece of information or maybe a theory or a model that stands out and is really something that's almost the foundation to what you believe in now? Okay, so I've got three degrees, yeah? So yep. I, I'm not trying to flex by saying that. I'm only saying that to say that I probably learned a lot more towards my masters so i've done a master's in sports psychology okay um and then i've done a master's in psychology and then sports science um undergrad i learned a lot in my um yeah my master's and so when you when you're getting trained to become a psychologist there's different kind of frameworks that you can go by so there's different approaches and styles that you can develop as a psychologist so one that most people know is cbt cognitive behavioral therapy there's um there's positive psychology there's a number of yeah. ones and so I kind of began to learn that me as a psychologist we would just think that I have all the answers and I just basically share it with the individual when really the the answers really come from the individual and it's my duty to help the individual navigate and actually come to those answers that I guess they will come up with and just allows someone to clear their mind, but I guide them through that process. Whereas I previously thought as a psychologist, I just tell someone something and then they change their mind and, you know, problem solved. It's really within the individual. So that's one of the key things that I learned at uni um, where I kind of developed my particular framework and style. In terms of when you finished your degree, was it straightforward for you to move into the world where you're actually having clients or was that a, a process that was not quite straightforward? If I'm, if, if I'm honest, if I was to say one of my greatest qualities is that I'm very calculated. So I always was very long-term in my thinking. And so um, I, I feel like if you leave things to fall in place, you leave things out of your control. So what do I mean by that? When I was doing my studies, you know, I was working in the gym, um, so I was earning some income. But I, I always got told that you need experience. And we always get to that crossroads if you finish uni or even go to a job where you might get turned down for the lack of experience. And you're thinking, how on earth am I going to get experience if you're not going to give me the experience? So I wanted to overcome that dilemma. So when I was studying at uni, I made it my priority, and my priority rather, to, to actually get experience and volunteer. So by the time I finished my degrees, um, I would have developed a wealth of experience that hopefully I would fall into something. So um, I kind of forgot what the question was, but how smooth with the transition you asked me, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thankfully, um, if I was to break down the stories, I started doing some work experience at a college and working with a basketball team. And then I was lucky enough to, um, to... to work and negotiate a, a work experience term with a football club called Dagenham and Redbridge. 
Okay. So I worked with their academy. They had the best uh, season in their history, right? And we played a local rival, um, a team called Southend United. Don't know. Yeah. Sure you guys have heard. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we beat them, like, battered them. And then t- to the point where the opposition manager came into our changing room after the game and commended us and asked, what was, um, what's your secret? And the manager, who was very kind, he um, said, we've been doing the same thing we've been doing, but this season we have a sports psychologist with us. And um, long story short, I got headhunted by Southend to work with them. <laughs> you know, so uh, <laughs> that was literally during the transition of me finishing my master's. So thankfully, I wasn't someone who um, was struggling to find opportunities. But the only reason why I didn't struggle was because I was putting in the, the ugly volunteering hours during my, my, my what, four, four years of um, purposeful studying. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of you being a sports psychologist, I think one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, the age difference. So they, they, they talk a little bit about it in football. So there's a lot of fo- football managers now that are coming into their 30s and they sometimes talk about, you know, the relationship between, you know, the senior players with those managers. Now, you, when you're even at a younger age, so you are, you know, at... Is this during your masters um, when you was at, with Dagenham and Redbridge? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So you're in your early twenties. So, what was that like being um, a sports psychologist um, with the senior members? And in fact, how did Dagenham and Redbridge? How did they integrate you to ensure that there was gonna be um, a good relationship and there wasn't gonna be any ages problems? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I started off working with the academy, to be honest with you, and. Um, okay. Every time I've worked with clubs, it's often the academy. You kind of got to just like they prove your worth, so to speak. Mm. And, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the thing, I think, one of the things that a coach often feels responsible for is the psychological side, especially yeah. in boxing. So you kind yeah. of earn the trust that you're not there to step on their toes or to undermine them, or you got to earn the, the trust from the coaches. So I had to spend some yeah. time doing that. So. My t- tactic, and not everyone is like this, I go to the club, don't say a word, and I just be a presence for the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Just become that familiar face, because any person that goes into a new environment, everyone's going to be like, who's that? Like, you know, so, um, mm. I, you know, make, make sure I remembered everyone's names and kind of just really just build a rapport. That makes everything that I do a lot easier. And so um, I think once they, they kind of connect with the individual, it doesn't even really matter how old I am. And then, because of my reputation, I'm obviously there with first teamers. They see me, I say hello to them, I speak to them. Before yeah. you know it, the first teamers ask me what I do, I tell them, and I'm not going to lie, like I developed clientele with first teamers without even working with the first team. You know, just because of how I slowly integrated myself in and, and one being personable. So I think... One of the youngest managers in, in football, I'm sorry to always be football-based, I can try That's and transition fine. to other sports as well, um, is Brendan Rodgers, right? Yeah. And I saw an interview from a player, an ex-player, who said, I haven't heard a player say one bad word about Brendan Rodgers. And I think from the outside looking in, I've, I've worked with a Liverpool player who worked under Rodgers. And one of the things I've heard about him is he's very personable. He's such a nice guy and he's always looking out for the best of you, you know. I think, correct me if I'm, well, 
if I'm wrong, forgive me, but it's something along these lines where someone had a a, um, a, a family issue, you know, um, and at Liverpool, and they lived in London. He sent them to London and he's like, go and handle your stuff and come back, you know, whenever. And so I'm saying all of this to say that the matter, no matter your age, you still need to be someone of quality, but also being down to earth and and not give a bit of freedom to the players, not to be crazy, but a little bit of um, independency. And I feel like that is key to, to working with individuals and should eliminate the age discrepancy for the large part. Yeah. yeah. Long-winded answer that. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like it. Exactly. Working in football, you must come across a lot of footballers who go through a period of their career when they're struggling with their confidence. What are some of the things you do to help build their confidence? Yeah. Um, what's your number one sports, gents? Just, just so I know. Um, so I slightly favour boxing now over okay. football. But yes, boxing slash football, right. tennis. Okay. I, don't have, I don't have a number one. It's athletics, football, okay. tennis. Okay. One of the three. I'll try and make sure I give examples on that sometimes then. But if I'm working with a player with, um, regarding confidence, um, I think one of the first things I need to get to... There's a, I can't really give you one answer because I never do the same thing, but there's things that I kind of need to do. I need to know the player. So whether I need to research the player or um, whether I kind of know the player from you know the public knowledge, um, I want to get to know the personality and sometimes I'll sit down and speak to them in one session and my aim is to try and get to know them as much as possible within an hour right which kind of lets me know how I can then address it but then context is the biggest scenario whether the player has been dropped and out of the team and they've now lost a bit of confidence whether Tyrone Mings for example felt like he he had like an imposter syndrome I don't know if you heard what he said the other day where he was in the squad and he almost felt like he didn't deserve to be in there so he had a yeah. bit of a confidence issue there. Mm. Um, whether someone who um, has been injured for about a year and they're coming back and they feel like they've lost their confidence in that way. So there's different categories that may lead to a different sense of confidence um, loss. But the most important thing when you're working with someone, from my perspective, is for them to, to acknowledge that a lot of the time their confidence dips due to scenario-related elements. So really, confidence is a reactionary emotion in most cases where you might really know that you are the bee's knees as a player, but a scenario makes you question it. So it's kind of separating your core inner values and how you really perceive and see yourself and disassociate that from the scenario that you've experienced, you know, and get them to see the difference between their feelings between those two um, and kind of navigate your way through that because... A lot of our confidence, even as normal individuals like you and I, is really hinged on scenarios, you know, rather than actual inner feelings about ourselves deep down. So um, that's that's one of my usual go-tos is trying to dis- disassociate the two and get them to see that. And then I really start penetrating with um, psychological skills and techniques that they can apply. 
I'm super, super interested in what you just said. So again, my head, it just goes a thousand miles per hour. So I'm looking at two ways you could do it. You could be just having a conversation in a traditional format where it's just you speaking to your client. But then on the other side, I look at it as potentially it could be some form of a hypnosis where you're, you're, you're going through a particular um, situation and you and your client are reflecting on how they may feel and then that's where you start um, looking into I, I, I guess um, remedies to ensure that if it does happen in real life um, that they know what to do is that the sort of thing that happens yeah, like in a nutshell um, everything yeah, okay. that you said regarding I mean this, uh, except for like hypnosis I don't I don't yeah. kind of operate that way okay. um, I yeah, like yeah. To think that things are within someone's control yeah so, hypnosis is not in your control so you almost like if i if you was to go through that you kind of be like oh what happened no i mm. need you to know exactly what happened so that i don't need to be that person that coaches you through it every time okay so i want to be able to give you that tool so you become self-dependent so to speak yeah but you yeah. said you're so interested can you see why i kind of fell in love with that teacher then anyway yeah um basically what you said obviously there's so much fundamentals and intricacies yeah. that go into it but yeah. for those listening yeah you literally kind of get them to reflect and i kind of help them navigate to a solution so i'm going to talk about something that just happened quite recently which is simone Biles. so obviously as a gymnast you do crazy things in the air how would you talk to someone like that who is going through a period where there's a lack of confidence um because of what do they call it in gymnastics, the twisties? How would you talk to someone like that? How would I speak to someone like that? So I don't mm. know. I was, um, Channel 4 contacted me last week to speak um, on that topic. And um, that led me to look into it into more detail. So I really studied it. So a lot, yeah. I do a lot of behaviour analysis. So that's another thing that I could do with a player that's lacking in confidence. If I'm able to be there as a physical presence, I would like to try and observe and see if I can notice some behavioural uh, or even body language, or even just information that I can use as additional context. But back to Bowles now, I um, listened to her intentively in her interview and just kind of looked into her um, her story and stuff. And there's a few things she mentioned. She said that she was lacking in sleep. She was um, suffering stress. Her body was shaking. Um, and then she had a bit of doubt. So that's a number of things that um, are different things that can be addressed. And one of those things is sleep. So it's tough because sometimes athletes don't sleep and they'll have the best performance of their lives as we can, as semi-professionals could probably attest to. (laughs) But but largely there's, there's all of those things cannot be ignored. Gents, like everything has to be addressed in good detail. So bodily shaking, that's her handling her nerves and anxiety. So we have to kind of go through and acknowledge that um, and kind of, Anxiety is birthed from unwanted and negative thoughts that keep replaying that you can't like you're that's consuming your mind to the point where you're now being able to unable to function, your body kind of freezes and you start developing some reactions that's all coming from the thought. So we need to explore that. Why is she feeling like this? What has happened either in a transition that has made her feel like that? And I feel like one of those contributing factors is the fact that we've had the pandemic. She may have had 
she's a year older, so maybe her body is not as sharp as it may have been. You've got the fans or the lack of fans in Tokyo. You had the idea of is is the Olympics going to happen or not? So her training may have been stop start. So she may not have been at a physical readiness, which then affected her mental readiness. So that's just exploring the anxiety part as ourselves, and we have to kind of get to that point where we can rationalize and get her to a point where she can feel a bit comfortable. Um, stress comes from anxiety as well. So we kind of got to look at how her preparation has been from, you know, from maybe getting to Tokyo, whether she's been at a relaxed state. Um, and I commented in and, and um, I believe there were psychologists there, but maybe they might not have been enough. Maybe those psychologists were pinned to someone else and Simone didn't actually have that opportunity to speak to them or she might not have felt that she could have opened up to them. So this is, I mentioned it as well when I was last week where we have like probably 17 trainers for that Olympic team, I will guess, physical trainers. And why would there only be just one psych? Mm. So um, I do think there needs to be, and I think they will now with these athletes coming out to mention that they're not, mentally ready and their mental health needs to be protected that there could be more provisions made but to answer your question again like I would have to address each one of those things that are a concern of her um and really attack each thing I can't ignore a single thing otherwise that thing that was ignored could have affected her in her performance you know I think one of the things that comes to mind is um Naomi Osaka and and she's just another individual another individuals that that is at the top of her game um she's extremely successful and was one of the most popular athletes in her field yet she is suffering from this and i do think that there's almost a stigma that the elite should have this mindset where they don't they they don't break down and in fact then they're they're not human so from my perspective, um, it's something that I have learned because maybe I carried a little bit of that ignorance. Would you say, and it's very difficult to just pile pile just one answer because it's very, very difficult, but would you say the pandemic has had a massive, massive impact on athletes, um, it, particularly for the elite athletes the most? Yeah, for sure, man. I feel like one of the biggest issues that athletes had to face was whether their, what was going to happen to their season, you know, um, whether they're going to actually play again. Like, if you really take it back to March 2020, yeah, when we had a national lockdown, it literally got announced, like, a couple of days before, and everything just kept getting postponed. You know, the shops were running out of water and toilet roll. Um, football was then cancelled shortly afterwards with no indication of when things would return. So their livelihood was literally completely stripped, as ours. And one of the biggest things, which is why I feel like all athletes are deserved their wages, maybe more in, you know, maybe with the gender differences and stuff. But one of the things that is really big in their commitment level was their discipline. So their discipline was almost uncertainty is like uncertain too whether they still had to be in training mode whether they still had to be keeping themselves um sharp but then also it's easier to keep yourself disciplined when you see the end goal or when you see the task or the objective at hand and with no objective 
you're just being told to remain disciplined, still sharp, no habits, um, no no relaxation for something you don't even know, like whether there's a like a, a competitive task at hand. And then I feel like they had to really go through some real mental strength battles to kind of keep motivated. Um, and that's aside from maybe family members that might have suffered from COVID, them avoiding COVID themselves. So there was yeah. a lot for them to go through. And being a year older, as I mentioned before, that doubt comes into mind. Players' pays had to be deducted. Um, contracts were uncertain because some clubs might not want to um, maybe renew contracts or maybe give them a pay rise or so many things uh, you have to consider. And I feel, especially in the Olympics, those athletes had to go through a lot more in a sense because their showcases are are not weekly. These are biannual, um, even more than that as well. So I feel like there was a lot of mental battles that athletes had to go through to stay disciplined, to stay on top of their game, but then also for them to just make sure that they were mentally ready to and juggle that and being human beings too. So they had to go through a lot, but let me say we all had to go through something. So the, the moral of this, me speaking about um, them and, and us is, that we do need support. We all need support in some way. And speaking, as we're seeing from these amazing ladies, um, can bring some freedom. When you're yeah. sharing and you're speaking to other people, it can bring freedom and, and hopefully more support too. Yeah, definitely. Because the, them being more open has basically opened up the, the talk that this is something that a lot of professional athletes go through. But it's yeah. something that is not spoken in the in the media um and yeah they have their challenges all the time what do you guys think what do you think nathan because i guess Ed, edwin you gave your piece what with regards to um in, in terms of do you feel like the athletes have a lot to juggle and what do you see it as we all are humans deal with your battles equally so I I feel that a lot of these athletes, they've got a lot to juggle. And I think one of the um, pieces that, is, that has not been mentioned is social media. And I think social media has an absolute um, integral part to play when it comes to the the mind of, of an athlete. Positively um, or negatively? Um, both. Yeah. So I'm not... I think... I sit on a fence with social media. There are some commentators that would say that, you know, some of you know, players, I heard one football former footballer that said he doesn't know why any footballer is on social media. But then on a plus side, I do think that it's it's a good thing because for myself, the reason why I joined in the early stages of Twitter was because I could speak to people directly. So the person who I was contacting always was um He's head of he's head of Showtime Boxing in America, Stephen Espinosa, and he always used to respond. I used to ask him about fights. He would respond, and that's the plus side. But I think now what's ended up happening is we have a lot more trolls. We've kind of turned into a generation of trolls and bots. And what's happened is now these these athletes, regardless of the the psychologists that they have, regardless of the 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 great support that they have. 
if you're reading one or two negative comments a day, it's, it's going to keep on playing on your mind. And then on top of that, you've got your media obligations. On top of that, you've got the expectations of a nation. So I do think that they've got um, a major part to play. And I almost kind of feel sorry for them because you get Joe Public saying, oh my gosh, well, guess what? Um, if I was earning millions of pounds, I'd be able to do with all of this. No, that's that's super ignorant. That's absolutely ignorant. And, and it's, it kind of annoys me when Joe Public says that because you can't conflate somebody's salary to how their mindset should be. You, you, you can't, you just can't. So for myself, I, I do think that there needs to be a lot more support, not just from the sporting field, but also from us, from us, the public. And we need to just actually just realise that these people are just humans, um, just like us. So yeah, that's yeah. my take. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you look at, for example, um, England uh, at the Euros, they got to the final. But along that way, there's there's been many players, especially when it comes to racial abuse, that receive, receive so much abuse. It's it must be very difficult to take that on at the same time while you're trying to while, while you're trying to compete for your country. So it's a lot of pressure. So I do think social media nowadays, compared to how how it was for athletes probably twenty years ago has a massive impact in the mindset of these current athletes. I was just going to say, like, think about these players in terms of how they will perceive fans in the future now, where, you know, they got abused by a lot of England fans, potentially. Maybe sometimes they were getting booed for taking a knee. Like, when they're getting support in the future, they might even have trust issues to even embrace that support now because they question whether it's genuine or not. Yeah. And so I think we're, we could be in danger of a real disassociation with fans and players now because, you know, flex fans will support you in good times and kind of stab you in the back in the bad times. And I hope it doesn't really affect those players in, in a negative way where they slowly become cold towards fans. And I think we could be in danger of that. Yeah, yeah. no, 100%. Um, something comes to mind. Actually, I want to ask both of you. That's why I was going to say, let's switch yeah. it up. So... I've, I've entitled the question obligations versus mental health. So Naomi Osaka, the reason why that triggered me, and I won't mention the name, the reason why it triggered me is because a commentator suggested that she should be able to deal with the media obligations. And that took me all the way back to Jose Mourinho at Inter Milan. So there was one time um, he missed his post, uh, his press, his post press conference and he got his assistant to do it. And in Italy, I remember him saying that a lot the, the the media obligations after a game is an hour and a half, so it's a it's a lot longer compared to other countries, and he got fined for it. So the the the, the Italian authorities fined him, and then he went on a strike. He went on a strike for about about a month, and they just kept sending out his assistant. Yeah. But then it it takes me all the way back to it takes me back to Osaka because. That's part of the problem. Sometimes, you know, journalists or, or media, and I don't want to, I don't want to paint them in a bad picture, but sometimes they ask pressing questions when that individual could be having a bad day. So my question to you, to, to you both, is where does the line, where where is the line between looking after your mental health and media obligations? Where where, does, where, where is that line? I love to know what you think, Edwin, because I, I know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think. I think there is a there's a thin line, and some of the questions that get asked nowadays are absolutely ridiculous. 
Um, so as an athlete, it's, it's probably how you, how, you know, you're going to get, this is why, this is why we have situations when people get asked questions and they give generic answers because as yeah. soon as you decide to open up, they're coming for you. And, and, and that's one of the biggest issues out there now. It's not, it's, we, people don't feel like they can be hundred percent honest. Mm. What do you think? Well, I think... Oh gosh, I'm gonna try and keep this concise. But I think mm. with with athletes, um, I do think it's good to to go and and speak on the press and and fulfil those obligations. I think, but they need to ensure that they know what they're going against. Then they're often not going for people that are for them. They're trying to go for the company or the the you know the you know the organisation that they represent to try and provide content that is worth whether your clicks or attention to their network. So I think in that case, if, if there's a bit of a mental readiness, knowing that people are out to get you, it can help you navigate some of those um, challenging questions. At the, same, at the same time, one of the things I really try and push and encourage athletes to do is maximise control, even as human beings. So even everyone listening here, how can we maximise control so things are within your hands and within your power? Because if they're in your power and control, you're able to, to manage things a lot more and you're less likely to be in in the the theater section rather than the victoria section so um if if someone maximizes control in their case then maybe if you don't feel to do a press conference you don't do that and, and that allows you to protect your mental health just like um asaka did because she came out and said that she'll be asked questions that cause doubt so if you can avoid scenarios that can cause doubt then I'm all for that. Um, however, there's gonna be you can't avoid doubt all the time, so there has to be a mental uh, readiness um, and, and a mental, uh, gosh, um, ability to combat some of those uh, challenges that you will occur inevitably in your career. So I, I, I sit, I don't sit on the fence. I see both sides, and I feel like we should be prepared for each. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's why I rate Serena Williams so much because every press conference she has, she's in control of that press conference. Like they don't control her; she can she controls how it goes. And I think as as an athlete, you have to get to that point where you dictate the the press conference because they're gonna ask you questions you don't like, but you have to be in control of it so that you can navigate the way you want it to go. Who's the best person in doing that? Just very quickly, I just want to see if you guys, Floyd. Well, Floyd, yeah, Floyd. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't even have to say anything about I'll Floyd. Pick up, I'll pick up Trigger's name for the next topic. <laughs> of course. I'm <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's actually fitting because that was my next question was boxing. So I want to take you to two boxing matches, Chris Eubank Sr. versus Michael Watson and Chris Eubank Jr. versus Nick Blackwell. Unfortunately... Nick Blackwell and Michael Watson were, I guess, permanently damaged or injured, so to speak, um, through their, their, yeah, just through their bouts. Um, very, very aggressive. And whilst it was pleasing for the fans, unfortunately, it came at a price. So we know that there was a really fitting, fitting video of... Um, 
senior, Chris Eubanks senior, speaking to Michael Watson in tears, you know, apologizing and Michael Watson, you know, just accept, just saying, look, it's not your fault. You know, we, we, we both did it. And there was, there was a love there. And it's something that as much as I love boxing, it, 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 I do think about that. So my question to you is if you were a psychologist for a fighter who has just permanently injured an opponent, what is the process for you to, what would be the process for you to really get them back to where they were? So my question is when they're permanently kind of scarred, is that, does that mean that they're not returning to the sport in the context of your question? No, so they are going to return. They're going to return. They're going to keep on fighting. Right, right, right. Okay. But they have psychological scars. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So basically lost, essentially, but badly. Yeah. Um, boxing is a tough one, um, and, I, and I can do it. Boxing is, is a tough one because boxing is definitely made up from ego. Right. Yes. And and I don't mean ego in every sense of the word. I say that because you have to have you portray a public image of being undefeated or unbeatable or unshaken, and that works in your favour because then it kind of leads no um, fragility to the opponent who could try and uh, activate and try and get you know you to lose a mental battle before you get into the ring. So um, that's the blessing and the curse of boxing because if someone then loses, a lot often the time you get boxers who will not admit defeat or or mm, still yeah. feel like they won the fight when yeah. really you didn't. So <laughs> yeah. I think one of the I say all of this to then say if I'm working with an athlete, I have to get them to see that they have to strip that ego. Um with me at least anyway. You know? Um so at that point I'm able to get them at their vulnerable state. Um and that's something that has to be agreed because I can't really work with you if you can't be honest. If in your head you're thinking, oh, you kind of battered me. But then when you're speaking out in the public and you say something different and, and that's the same message to me, I can't work with you because I can't get into your your um, to your vulnerable side. So once I'm already there, they'll be vulnerable. They will speak to me and they will share their thoughts and feelings. But, um, you know. At the same time, once you strip the ego, you have to kind of understand and accept the nature of the sport you're in. There's going to be times that you're going to do this to other opponents and there's going to be times that an opponent might catch you. And I think it will be good to reflect one of the biggest things that I really try and push and which I've pushed in this book that I've released recently is reflection, um, where you identify some of the things that you've done well, praise yourself, but then also identify the things that you can improve for your next bout. And so... There needs to be a lot of time where we reflect on some of those things that happened in that fight. Um, and what's very key is acceptance because we need to accept that you've lost and, and kind of let that feeling of defeat pass after a period of time. But then it's all about what are you going to do? It's all about proactive steps. And I would always triangulate my communication with the boxer, with the trainer as well. So we're all speaking and identifying and coming up with the things that we feel like may have cost them fixing and you know um addressing that and really work on building that confidence and readiness for the next fight and aj is a great example of that because we knew that one of the things that he didn't do when he was fighting ruiz was actually box he was just literally going for a power punch and mm -hmm. it didn't even take longer than six much longer than six months for him to box and he won the fight by boxing so 
you can really tell that there was an acceptance in defeat for AJ, for instance. It really hurt him because he almost sounded like he wanted to cry at the end of that fight if you watched the post-match interview, which is fine. He probably cried a lot. But then, you know, he he looked at things that he needed to improve, got another additional trainer in, addressed those things, and came out and and won the fight. So, to summarise, it's it's those elements that I would work on with a boxer and hopefully get to the desired outcome the next time around. So, essentially, so... With with a so so on the flip side, you, you've won the fight. Yeah. You've destroyed the opponent, and unfortunately, there's been permanent damage. So, even in what you said, for them to get over the fact that maybe they've put their opponent in a coma yeah. or they've put them in a wheelchair, it would be acceptance. It, it you would they would have to accept that this has happened for them to move forward would you say that for sure um okay a lot of things that needs to happen before um gents is acceptance need to happen way before that you know Mm. like it's almost like accepting the terms of conditions before you you know buy a phone contract you got to know that you if you want to cancel it mid contract Mm. you're going to pay 500 pounds you know so it's like before a, a boxer really gets into that ring which most of them do by the way you got to know and a lot of them pray now, you know, and, and are very attentive to a boxer once they've knocked them out. If you've seen after the fights now, yeah. very attentive. Yeah. And, and yeah. I feel like there's a lot of acceptance and acknowledgement of what they're at, like, what's at risk in a fight. So I yeah. think that's helped. Um, unfortunately, what has caused this awareness and this attentiveness has been past injuries that you've mentioned. So unfortunately, yeah. those yeah. negative scenarios has changed the way sport is for boxers. Um, but yes, acceptance is a massive thing for both ends. And can I add one more point, please? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'm glad you brought the flip side up because working with athletes does not always have to be the negative and the lacking confidence. It could be a um, Ivan Tony plays for Brentford, striker yes. for the championship, really yeah. top striker in the best yeah. shape of his career. How can we keep him? at the highest level when he doesn't suffer from complacency and so um, so-called fall off so it's the flip side in that sense too where we're not just working with athletes that are going through a tough time and, and it's negative it's also about working with the athletes that are going through good times too and help them better their best hmm. i think a good a good example there is probably novak djokovic so novak djokovic is someone who's managed to maintain that and he talks a lot about the mind he talks about how even when someone's cheering for someone else he's thinking they're cheering for him (laughs) (laughs) he he thinks so much it's so the mind is so important in terms of how someone manages to to get to the the level that they're supposed to be at but also to stay at that level yeah yeah yeah. i like how you're attentive to the mental side you reference serena as well and novak uh, I like that. That's how I kind of think when how I started to think when I was getting into sports. One of your articles, um, there was a concern about the potential mental fatigue of players um, at Euro 2020. So in hindsight, how do you rate 2020? Euro 2020, yeah? Euro 2020, yeah. Um, it wasn't a genuine deep down concern. But I feel like the context of the, you know, they're playing three seasons back to back. Yeah. The, the, there is a fear of that. So I wasn't really that concerned. I wanted to make thought-provoking content. 
Um, there was a lot of injuries in, in the Euros, right? And yeah. Yeah. two, three days in, we had someone who nearly lost their life. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's not for me to then say, yeah, I'm right. It's more about, that was one of my concerns in the Euros and I was hoping there'll be minimals, um, min, minimal incidents, uh, in, incidences. And I think incidents, anyway, whatever the word is. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a lot of substitutions which really helped um maybe lessen that the severity of injuries but there were a lot of injuries in that euros yeah that, that italian gentleman who got injured yeah. and a long-term injury there there was a lot so um and even if there was no pandemic there would have been injuries anyway but i was just hoping that there wasn't going to be so many long-term injuries that a lot of teams would have been going into the new season with casualties you know uh, <laughs> and it, unfortunately there's quite a few in the retrospect I don't really feel wrong or right. I wanted to just make people aware of what happened in the last two seasons that players are probably at risk of being hurt. My next question kind of links to to injuries. So when when an athlete has had injuries and has reoccurring injuries, what are the type of things that you say to them so that they don't have that fear of getting injured again? Oh, um, acceptance is a really big thing again you have to because yeah. a lot okay so when someone gets injured they replay the scenario again and again and you have a lot of regret and you kind of wish that incident didn't happen so there's a lot of blame so whether you're blaming yourself for maybe going into a challenge or let's just say um let's just say you injure yourself during basketball, maybe and you jumped and landed awkwardly. You might even regret jumping. Maybe you kind of replay that incident and just have a lot of regret. You might even blame the opposition for causing the injury. So in order for you to even get past that and work to recovery, you kind of need to accept that incident as, as it is. Um, in terms of, I'm going to kind of speed up my answer, but in terms of, um, goodness me, Yeah. Um, one of the things that you need to do not every psychologist does this by the way but you have to replay the incident of you being injured again and visualise yourself coming out on top not injured you want to familiarise yourself with that scenario or a similar scenario replay that and um, you envision yourself coming out recovered you know you landing appropriately you landing unaffected and start, you know, because nine times out of ten, a lot of the times then when people get injured, they've actually encountered that scenario so many times, which makes that athlete accept, or it makes it harder for an athlete to accept when they've actually been there so many other times, you know, um, and then this one time they get injured. So if you can envision yourself um, coming out of the similar challenge unaffected, that kind of brings you about a mental readiness during your rehab as you get stronger, and you're doing other things within that rehab to kind of feel like you're less likely to, to re-injure yourself again. Um, there's a lot more psychological things that go into it, but to answer the question of fear of re-injury, there has to be a lot of mental prep um, and visualisation and recreating that scenario and creating a, almost like a deja vu so that when you get in that scenario, you're not scared because you've seen yourself go through that challenge and land the right way and, and um, you know, go for it. 
uh, come out on top. So uh, my question that I've always I've wanted to ask um, a psychologist in football ha- is how has psychology changed in football considering that cardiac arrests has become more frequent in a game and players seeing that and we saw the you know the distressing scenes with the Danish players you go back to 2012 um, Fabrice Muamba I think even before that there was was it yeah Mark yeah yeah so has psychology changed has it been is psychology in football particularly proactive to these incidences now or is it reactive like what's your take on it Unfortunately, in sport, a lot of it's reactionary. So they will see things occur in sport and then set like action plans to try and avoid it in the future. And that's the unfortunate thing. And it kind of mirrors the example that we used in boxing, where, you know, they saw an injury and, and they've now worked with athletes to become a lot more accepting of what's at risk and blah, blah, blah. So um, one of the things that I... I um. I haven't been in that scenario before, so it's hard for me to kind of give you a personal experience. It's kind of like me watching from afar. Um, the unfortunate thing in, in football is that players bottled up a lot of things inside. So even if we wanted to react and kind of work to help athletes deal with the trauma, um, sometimes people wouldn't have known that athletes were really going through a traumatic experience because no one was voicing it out. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that seeing someone potentially nearly die is traumatic. So to be fair, there should have been things in place prior. But football's learning. And, and you know, slowly but surely we're seeing, as you're seeing now, like the mental health um, being voiced by the athletes now. So now it has to be taken seriously. But um, I feel like in some degrees, in some cases, should I say, you might even need a clinical psychologist. Because that's that's a real serious issue, and it's not because a sports psychologist might not be able to handle it. It's just that um, a clinical psychologist is a little bit more hands-on in terms of day-to-day, hour by hour, um, and you might be able to trigger some aspects that um, the, the time a sports psychologist might have allotted to an athlete, let's just say out of club or something, might not be available. So um that that could it has to be something that takes a lot of time to overcome you know you can't if you see someone die that's that that's going to take some real time and a sports psychologist could handle that but i may prefer someone to a a clinical psychologist because i haven't been in that scenario and i and i don't and i never really picture myself to be some to to be trained to deal with someone that's passed away that's that's so you have to know what you can do and what you can't do. And I think I would refer to a clinical Um This is my last question. And it kind of um, links to where, where, let's say in the next 10 years, what do you want to see different in the world of sports psychology when it comes to sport? Okay, so I have things that I would like to happen for me and my vision. Um, and... Yeah, I feel like a lot of the things that I want, I don't necessarily want to see for everybody else, right? Um, and that's like just selfishly speaking. But in terms of professionally, I mentioned it earlier where, you know, if I go to a football club, I'm seeing physical trainers left, right and centre. 
right? And that's good because I, I feel like there's different domains that someone needs help where someone's injured, they need the physical rehab. You know, if you want to get someone fit, you've got the physical trainer there. If you want someone to analyze your performance, you've got analysts there. So you've got different people in different departments. And you've heard me mention different categories that Simone Bowles is experiencing difficulty. Um, and that's just one athlete out of a team of, what, 25 maybe. So I would like to see more sports psychs involved in, in one organization, one team, and more people within the camp because I feel like one psychologist per 50 players is not enough. Someone can't give every single individual the amount of attention that they need and maybe deserve. So that's something I want to see more of in the game. Um, I would like the notion of sports psychology to not only be seen as we're only there to help you out in tough times. Um, unfortunately, if I if I think about the, a lot of the television appearances I've made, I've only been speaking about uh, negative scenarios. I've speak about spoken about Raul Jimenez's injury, whether AJ is is got the mental strength to deal with you know defeat, um, and and Simone Biles, for instance, or Saka, and then the racism with Saka. So I've only spoken about. Um, negative scenarios and I would like to see sports psychology in a scenario where you know the greatest basketball team arguably is Golden State how can we work with a Golden State so they avoid their decline which has happened of recent right so how can we get them going from I don't know if they got a three peak but if they did how can we get them to get a four and maybe a fifth and I would like to see psychology head in the direction where we work with people that are in great form and keep them at that. Yeah, so I guess my last question is really about um, an arrogant... This is, a, this is from a perspective of a young, arrogant, brash, elite performer in their field. Yes. And their response to you is, I don't need nobody. I don't need no sports psychologist. I'm the top of my game. I'm going to maintain that. I've got the mindset. They're 17 years old. Guys, I'm not being ageist. I'm just creating a scenario. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what's your response to them? I've had players tell me that and end up being clients. <laughs> That's point. it. Good. You know, um, <laughs> and I don't like how that happens because... That's, that's literally what I'm trying to avoid. My fight is that we can still get you to stay there and, you know, like, how can we work to keep you there and stuff? So, But that same athlete had a negative experience. What do you think they did? They called me. So, um, mm. so at the same time, though, I never want to work with anybody that doesn't want to work and develop their mental side. Not because um, I'm being, like, you know, emotional by it, but it's because the answers come from you. I help you navigate to answers. And if you are um, shut down to the idea of working and developing the mental side of your game, we're not going to get anywhere. I'll be spending half of my time trying to convince you rather than develop and, and support you. So um, in some ways, as you let's go 17 years old, sometimes that is a, a journey for them to kind of find on themselves that they need, that the psychological part is, you know, essential. Think about us, for instance, when we were 17, we may have been able to eat a lot of things and get away with it and still be able to be semi-professional footballers, yeah? Mm. But as we get older, (laughs) we realise, damn, we can't get away with not sleeping adequately and eating poorly 
and then coming out and doing a having a worldly performance. So as maybe some athletes get older and stuff, they may feel like they can get away with things from just their physical performances. But maybe as they get older and they they have their their own journey, they might see that you know it's a bit more than the physical. And so sometimes you just got to be patient and let people kind of live and experience. You don't want to force psychology on other people, otherwise they will resent it. That's a good answer. <laughs> you definitely know your stuff. Um, Sanchez, that was a really, really good interview. Um, we loved it. It was action-packed. It was littered with information. I'm looking forward. <laughs> I don't know um, if that was a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> it, no, it's good. It's good. Did you know what it is? I think... As we've said, we said on a bonus episode, we said it on our first episode, it's just about information. We want to pour yeah. out information. That's what it is. It's not just about talking. You know, Edwin and I, we both don't like our own voices. <laughs> this is the, even this, even doing a platform like this is difficult for both of us. We've had to overcome our own obstacles. So the more information that can be extracted from each of our episodes, the better, because we really want people to, to make changes in their life so we're really 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 thankful and um, how can people get in contact with you yeah um quickly responding to what you just said like you know yeah. us hating our own voices is scientific it's purely like it's nothing to do with us being insecure or like anything to do with emotions it's purely yeah. scientific how can people reach me um luckily like everything is my name so sanchez bailey <laughs> um is my website sanchez bailey yeah. is my um youtube channel and then you can find me on social media that way too i think i have my first initial of my middle name k on on twitter and instagram um but yeah everything you can find me there and then you find all my services and and hopefully if there's any athletes or aspiring athletes listening i can add value um the same book that you, you mentioned earlier the same book you mentioned earlier i'm gonna have one for normal individuals too so it won't just only be sport related too so hopefully i can appeal to um, a wider audience in that regard but thank you for having me on gents I like the way that you structured structured and bounce off each other no thank you thank you thank you. thank you very very good um, guys if you're new to the podcast um, welcome aboard and if you are a regular listener thank you for listening and continue to share guys until next time stay safe stay healthy Edwin I'm definitely going to change the conclusion of this podcast <laughs> guys see you later <laughs>